Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, your initiation into the ways of the square to resurrect the wretch and pee on the all-seeing pyramid of Illuminati enlightenment. And now, here's your host, Mr. Michael Joseph. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast. Welcome to episode number 25. We're going to kick off a new segment of the podcast, the It Ain't Dogma segment. And you can probably add in parentheses, but it's based upon it. Meaning that we're going to extrapolate ideas and debates that stem from scriptures that are seen to be inspired. But what does inspired mean, right? Does that mean it is literally the word of God and everything in there you can take to the bank, including scientific understanding, cosmology, literal history, or is it reserved to faith and morals? And then when does it separate into allegory or when is an historical event also fulfilling something that is a spiritual teaching or metaphor and it's a holistic thing where you can bring all of them into it and it's not an either or, it's more of an all of the above. So the interpretation really matters. And so we're going to apply this to the idea of the sons of God in Genesis 6. I'm sure many people are familiar with the different debates around this topic, usually tying it to the idea of an angelic host coming down and mating with women and producing giants or some sort of hybrid offspring that is ungodly. Or is it an analogy for man as the sons of God mating with some sexy ladies who might be a little bit more on the loose or immoral side, and it's more of a human temptation, but there are spiritual repercussions and connections at the same time. Now, at the end of the day, you're just going to have to decide for yourself what you think about this one. There's decent arguments on both sides. And as far as the Catholic viewpoint goes, there's no official teaching, but there are viewpoints that are upheld or more revered, which take the more Sethite view, as they call it. And it's very popular, especially nowadays, to reject the Sethite view. And hey, you're free to do so. But are there some particular cautions you might want to be aware of before you do that? And in fact, some of these viewpoints might actually lead towards the teachings in Kabbalah, Gnosticism, Manichaean dualism, and quote-unquote Judaizing, as they call it. And hey, as long as you're aware, you can do what you'd like. But you might end up with some very strange bedfellows in the process. Welcome to the first episode of It Ain't Dogma, but it's based on it. And to kick off this new theme for the podcast, we're going to talk about the sons of God in Genesis 6. And I think that we succinctly described the concept of this new segment in the introduction to this episode, but I will just remind people that that's exactly what this is, not dogma, but we're discussing the different viewpoints surrounding the Genesis 6 controversy, and you can believe what you'd like. You can take all of the information from this episode and do what thou wilt with it, for lack of a better phrase. But perhaps there are some red flags you might want to consider 
in regards to the varying viewpoints, but there's really two main interpretations from which everything else stems. Now, I'm sure many people listening are probably aware of this controversy, so what we're going to do here is try to separate out the different schools of thinking and then the things that usually stem from them, and then also talk about some potential dialectics as we discussed in occult Catholicism, but we'll elaborate on that as we go. So let's just get right into it here. So let's read the controversial passage itself. Genesis chapter 6. When men began to multiply on the earth and had daughters born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took wives for themselves as many as they wished. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not remain in man forever, since he is flesh. His lifetime shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men, who bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And then continuing on, you'll find that this created a lot of bad stuff, a lot of evil in the hearts of men. And then comes the flood of Noah. So what we'll do here is just briefly summarize all the different viewpoints that we will elaborate on in this podcast. But there are two fundamental divergences of opinions on this that send things onto different trajectories and then the groups that expand upon them and develop the doctrine, so to speak. So the two fundamental viewpoints that are at odds here are that one school says that the sons of God are men, and then the other says that the sons of God are angelic beings. Now, the way that all plays out within those divergent viewpoints can actually differ as well, but those are the fundamental issues at hand, so always remember that. And so a couple key things to note here that are common to both viewpoints is that there are the sons of God, that's one group, and then there are the daughters of men, that's the other group, and then there are the offspring of them, of which you'll hear the term Nephilim describing them. And then from that, the bad stuff happens and there is a connection to the flood. So those are the things that every viewpoint seems to agree on, that those are the factors, those are the groups involved, those are the objective elements to consider in this passage, but how they interpret them and how they bring in other texts or other traditions to attach to that, well, that sends things on two entirely different trajectories. So let's talk about some of the trajectories of the sons of God equaling men. Well, there's one tradition that says they are the sons of the nobility or rulers and shouldn't really be called sons of God. There's even a curse involved, but they're still seen as good and there's some sort of aristocratic nature to them. Others say that this is the descendants of Seth, who is the good replacement for Abel who was killed by Cain. And so this represents a more godly line rather than the ungodly line of Cain, who are the daughters of men. And next, you have to discern what does it mean to be of an ungodly lineage. Does that mean that you are bound as a fated connection to be ungodly? Or is there free will involved, but the general tendency when you grow up in an ungodly culture is that it leads you towards ungodly things, right? And this is the teaching on the Gentile or pagan cultures during the time of the Old Testament, right? 
but there is free will despite inclinations. And this is stuff that we've talked about before. But if you tie it to some sort of biological determinism, then the ungodly line is biologically challenged. However, those distinctions and debates can be applied to both of these viewpoints. So I'm not trying to say that that is only relevant to the sons of God equaling men. That's just another aspect of how you would need to extrapolate that in terms of what is a good or bad lineage. And so I would argue it is a generality and it's tied to the spiritual understanding, not a physical race as what you are bound to, despite different cultures and their various beliefs or religions that might lend towards better or worse behavior. So it's based on inclinations. You're not fated to it. And you have the free will to overcome that if you choose the proper means of doing so. But that gets into a whole nother debate as to what those proper means are. So we won't digress on that here. But regardless, the unity of these two lineages of men would naturally produce other men. However, they are described in kind of grandiose terms where people will interpret the Nephilim as being giants, as the mighty men of renown. And some say that this word Nephilim or giants could also mean tyrants. And there is an allusion to the idea that this is a typology of sorts of the Garden of Eden story, where there's something that's seen as tempting for whatever reason, and this leads to a bad decision that creates a sort of fall from grace, and then we have the flood dealing with that, as with Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden. Now, here's an important point. Sometimes people tie particular stories together in a broad sense that are connected and all viewpoints pretty much agree, but they attach more specificity than maybe is necessary. And so this is why you have an idea of a sexual sin with the sons of God and the daughters of men. And then people might tie that to a sexual sin of Eve, and that might lend towards the serpent seed type stuff. And that's the thing that we'll get more in depth on in the second hour, because I think that's a viewpoint that the sons of God's story in Genesis 6 can lead to that. But if the serpent is a divine being, then that would lead more towards the sons of God being angels rather than men. So I think that that particular view has the temptation, no pun intended, of lending towards the serpent seed viewpoint. Now, not everybody who takes the sons of God as being angels or divine beings ends up believing the serpent seed, but it is certainly something that can lend to that, right? It's like a gateway to that. Let's put it that way. However, if the sons of God are indeed just men, what does that generally lend towards? Well, that lends more towards the Catholic position and some of the early church fathers and other important figures such as St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. And then you'll get this coming from Catholic scholars like Dr. Brant Petrie. And I also think early Protestants like Calvinists and Anglicans. And I will have a separate blog post or a link to give you all of the resources from which I'm drawing from here. And you can go check them all out on your own time. But the point being that this is not a dogma. You don't have to accept this viewpoint in Catholicism, but it is certainly given a lot of weight and is held in high esteem. 
And furthermore, I would posit that this prevents you from going to places that lead into more Kabbalistic or Gnostic interpretations or other aspects of modern Judaism, and we'll talk about that in a second. But, however, there are some Jewish traditions that do take this viewpoint, specifically in the sons of God being the nobility or rulers, and there's even a curse involved in this for calling it the sons of God and not the nobility or rulers. Kind of a comical thing, and we'll flesh all that out in a little bit. So with that being said, let's go to the sons of God being the angels and taking that position and see what particular distinctions they make and what types of viewpoints that might lead to. So in this view, the sons of God are angelic beings of some sort, and this will often be tied to the fallen angels or some sort of Gnostic idea of descending into matter and being corrupted by that or some sort of variation of these things. Now, generally speaking, these beings are seen as bad. Blavatsky might take a bit more of a neutral approach or a more revered approach, but there are bad consequences. We'll also flesh that out very briefly later. And then sometimes people attach the Watcher Angels from the Book of Enoch to these sons of God, and that is really the most important thing that we're going to consider here. Now, the Book of Enoch is very controversial, and it's not seen as inspired scripture by Christianity, but it is referred to, or its tradition is referred to, in Peter and Jude, and we'll talk about that later as well. And so for the more scripture-alone folks, having it mentioned by Peter and Jude kind of opens up a doorway to having some sort of speculation upon the Book of Enoch, and then some people wonder, was it excluded from the canon for a reason? Is there some sort of secret wisdom attached to it that we all must have? And then sometimes that's tied to alternative cosmology, even flat earth kind of stuff. And all these different viewpoints that piggyback off of this idea of the Watcher Angels being tied to Genesis 6, whether it goes in a more Protestant Christian direction or an occult Gnostic direction. But generally speaking, these Watcher Angels are still seen as bad. And then they produce the Nephilim, or the giants, and these are physical giants because they are the offspring of spiritual beings, which are superior, and then therefore they're going to have crazy, weird, hybrid mixes, right? And then this gets into the idea of the flood being caused by this ungodly creation or union, and then sometimes people take that and say that they're still around, and this explains aliens because... The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and then after that, implying after the flood, some people take that passage and run with it in that particular direction. But the commonality there is that, generally speaking, those Nephilim hybrids are seen as bad. And then the daughters, who are these daughters? Are they good? Are they bad? Was this a rape? Was this a willing union? Those are all questions that need to be answered as well in this viewpoint. I don't know all the different positions on that, but it seems like the daughters of men are the innocent ones here. So assuming that's the case for most of the viewpoints taking the sons of God to be angelic, well, you can see how this is a direct inversion, right? Whereas if the sons of God are men and they're seen of a good line of Seth, but they fell or succumbed to temptation, 
well, then the daughters of men are the bad ones. They're of Cain, right? Whereas in the other version, where the sons of God are spiritual bad angels, then the daughters of men are either good or neutral or whatever, right? They're certainly not bad per se. Maybe there are some viewpoints that take them as being bad, but then it would be both bad and bad mating with each other, right? Whereas in the interpretation based upon men, there is a distinction between what is good, generally speaking, and what is bad, generally speaking. Whereas the latter one, it's a little bit more blended in its polarity, it would seem. And that, to me, lends more towards occultism, where you sort of have a dualism, but at the same time, it could be unified into some sort of neutral monism. And Blavatsky's theosophy is a little bit more akin to the latter, it would seem. But the point being is that this is a pattern we find often in these alternative viewpoints that lend towards Kabbalism or occultism. There is a straight-up dualism, like we talked about with the Cathars, and then there's the idea of a god above that dualism and this transcendent oneness beyond good and evil, as we mentioned. But the point being is that the Catholic viewpoint would reject both of those, the monism or the dualism. Now we know that theosophy tends to project dualism onto the Catholic Church, but that's more of a straw man argument, and it's exemplified in Madame Blavatsky's writings. So, what does this viewpoint of the sons of God as angelic beings, in whichever way it goes, what might that lead to? What does that viewpoint lend more towards in terms of particular trajectories? Well, one, it lends a bit more towards Judaism, but more on the Kabbalistic side of it. We talked about some Jewish traditions that take the sons of God as being mere men. But these ones that take them to be angelic beings will tie more to Kabbalah, or a sort of Gnostic dualism, as we shall see. We talked about theosophy on some level, the Manichaean dualism. There's also the ancient alien stuff that's often predicated upon these ideas. And then there's an element of this in Christian alt-media, where they tie Genesis 6 to the Watcher Angels and sometimes use it to explain aliens or people's experiences and the idea of hybrids. Not all of them take that viewpoint because some have the idea that they were wiped out with the flood. Some say they came back. Some say that the only remnants of that could be disembodied spirits and they could be playing tricks on people. But the point is there's not really a cohesive viewpoint with that. It splits into a lot of different sub battles within this idea of the Genesis 6 and the Watchers being tied together. Now, of course, if the Catholic's viewpoint or interpretation is generally speaking more or less the Sethite view, and that the allusions to the Watcher Angels by Jude and Peter have a different sort of context that doesn't tie them to Genesis 6, even if the tradition does, we'll explain that later. It's not necessarily an either-or, it could be a both, but the way they distinguish it in the New Testament is different than how the people who want to connect them will approach it. And then lastly, the red flag we might want to throw out here is that if you are of the Protestant ilk and you believe that you're guided by the Holy Spirit and the Bible alone, and you are led to these things through a sort of spiritual guidance or direction or whatever you want to call it, 
Why is it that you're being guided also to the interpretations that are heavily tied to Gnosticism and Kabbalah? And we will show you how they are tied to those things from academic scholarly works. And we'll get into that right now. So those are things you might want to ask yourself and just be aware of. And you might address them in a different way. You can believe what you'd like about it. As we said, this ain't dogma. However, the Catholic interpretation would actually save people from a lot of rabbit holes and a lot of the confusion that arises out of the sons of God being strictly angels and having nothing to do with men or the idea of a lineage tied to Seth. And the point of the Catholic side of the argument is that it helps prevent you from leading to errors or other heresies, or at least agreeing with some of them and having very strange bedfellows. And I'd say that that is certainly a red flag if you're calling yourself a Christian. If you're a Gnostic or whatever, then this is just part of your way of thinking. So it's kind of irrelevant in terms of a red flag, unless you think there's something maybe perhaps not so right about Gnosticism, because I tend to notice a lot of overlap with Gnostic ideas or disputations and refutations of Catholic doctrine that Protestants actually utilize themselves but many times they're not aware that they're giving Gnostic arguments or even modern Jewish viewpoints. And that's what the Catholic Church warns about with Protestant, quote-unquote, Judaizing. And when you're free to interpret it how you want, what do you get led into? And this is similar to the dialectic of the Protestants who reject Paul as a false apostle because they claim him to be a Gnostic. And then you have occultists claiming Paul is a Gnostic, but they think that he's great for it, right? Even Crowley says, who can argue with Paul? And so they both believe Paul is a Gnostic, but for different reasons. Now, obviously, most Protestants don't believe Paul was a Gnostic, but the point is, does the subjective scripture alone mindset often lead to such things the further you get away from the tradition? And that is our point here from the Catholic perspective. These are dialectics that can easily form and the Catholic side is saying, hey, these teachings aren't to oppress you or be mean or dogmatic to sound authoritative and be a Pharisee about it just because they want to feel good about themselves. The idea is that it protects you from getting lost in rabbit holes and spending all your time pondering a million and one different ways of rearranging the Rubik's Cube, so to speak, and being led to things that perhaps are not so great but you're simply not aware of what other viewpoints they're in bed with, but believe what you'd like. So let's begin the esoteric side of this by going to Gnostica, Judaica, Catholica, the book that we talked about in Occult Catholicism, from the Gnostic scholar Gillis Crispel and his essays, and roughly from page 557 through 560, we're going to talk a little bit about the Jewish roots of Gnosticism and how these things tie to the Enochian story of the Watcher Angels and their shenanigans on Mount Hermon and how that all relates. Now, first of all, people will say, well, Gnosticism isn't Jewish because they reject the Old Testament personal creator God, right? And I think that Quispel does a good job of fleshing this out and makes it a bit more of a broad definition and that the idea of being Jewish has a lot of different factions or distinctions, and some of them are violently opposed to each other, and some of them mix with paganism, stuff like that, right? So this is similar to Christianity. 
where you have certain Protestants who are at war with the Catholics, and they have fundamental oppositions on certain things, and then you have people like the dissenters rebelling against the rebels, and then that evolves into Freemasonry. But they're still focused on these ideas in Christianity, right? Freemasonry will talk about Christ, but they make him into a pagan Christ. And this is somewhat similar to the Gnostics rebelling against the Jews that didn't accept Christ on some level, but they want to transmute Christ into their understanding. So within some broad labels, the point is that there's fundamental oppositions within them. So when we say modern Judaism, we can say that all the Jews reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah. You can make an argument that Messianic Jews don't do this, but they are also usually tied to some sort of Zionism, of which the Catholic Church is completely against, and so there's an opposition there. And we can consider that with Protestantism and then Freemasonry, right? Where we have Protestantism that rejects the authority of the Catholic Church, as do the Masons, but they debate on the divinity of Christ and who Christ actually was, but there's still that fundamental reverence for the idea of Christ, even if the definition is vastly different, but also unifying on the rejecting of Catholic authority of which they stem from. So the point being is that we're going to use some of those broad understandings or foundational things when we talk about these groups, and then we'll flesh out the distinctions when necessary. So I don't want to get a bunch of people upset saying, oh, you called something Gnostic that's not Gnostic or whatever. We're talking about it in a very broad sense with the fundamental aspects that are common rather than all the different sects that even battle with each other. And Quispel admits that this is difficult to understand. Catholicism, Mandeanism, and Manichaeanism are against the quote-unquote Jews, though these religious currents are of Jewish origin themselves. And Quispel says, moreover, a Jew who is alienated from his religious tradition in which he was brought up still remains a Jew because he belongs to a specific people, in the same way as a Dutchman revolting against his Calvinist background is still Dutch. And of this, he says, let's face it, Mani or Mainz, the founder of Manichaean dualism, was a Jew, though he founded a religion which rejected the Old Testament. It is a dangerous fallacy to suppose that all Jews are equal, but that some are more equal than others and excel in quote-unquote Jewishness. So I tend to agree with Quispel here. There's some things he says during this that I think go a little bit too far, but generally speaking, that's kind of our broad sense of how we're looking at some of these things. And you see this transmutation in the New Testament where the idea of being a Jew starts to take on a different connotation as people start to accept Christ. And then there is a big battle going on between those Jews accepting Christ and the ones that didn't, even though the ones that didn't have different factions like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So we are going to admit there's a lot of complexity to it, but sometimes generalizations are necessary. And what I think is interesting is that Quispel makes mention of Philo, of whom the Masonic Dictionary boasts of basing its advanced degrees upon. Philo, the Jew of Alexandria, and Blavatsky's very favorable towards Philo. They all love Philo, right? We talked about this a lot in occult Catholicism and some of the strangeness going on with him. But basically, Quispel cites a scholar showing how deeply 
the Gnostic mythology is rooted in the Jewish apocalyptic that has its parallels with Philo. And he references the Gospel of the Egyptians, the hypostasis of the Archons on the origin of the world, the Gnostic creation story that we talked about in occult Catholicism, where we get the idea of the abortion of Yaldabaoth by Sophia. We talked about all the weird stuff with that. And certain Jews that didn't like being under Roman rule, who thought that their creator had abandoned them, and they started viewing the cosmos as a miscarriage, and that tied into the foundations of Gnosticism rejecting the Old Testament. All that stuff is kind of overlapping, and Philo is a key figure, even though he's a little flip-flopping and maybe a bit opportunistic and formulating a Gnostic doctrine that's more Hellenistic in order to try to transmute Christianity to the will of the Jews who don't want it to be true or want it to go away, right? That's a whole other thing that we mentioned being perhaps a possibility. But the point is that Quispel says that this scholar Bernard Bark finds echoes of the story of the Ethiopic Enoch concerning the descent of the angels on Mount Hermon, their union with the daughters of men and the generation of giants or Nephilim. In opposition of Elohim and Yahweh in the Apocryphon of John, he recognizes Philo's distinction between the creative force and the royal force of God, and he shows that the above-mentioned writings reflect a gradual evolution from Alexandrian Judaism to Gnostic dualism. And we're going to find how this relates to viewpoints on particular rabbis in Judaism of angels descending into matter and leaving their estate of spirit and how it relates to all of this. And so continuing, Bark relates the shadow descending into matter from the hypostasis of the Archon's work and forming into an arrogant being from matter to the Logos as shadow in Philo, which is instrumental in creating the world. Now, I know there's a lot of confusion in these Gnostic creation stories, but Point being, Quispel says this all amalgamates to the, quote, androgynous monster rising from matter, which is Fanes, the androgynous demiurge, originated from the eggshell of matter, identified with Ial de Bayot, right? Ial de Bayot, the Catholic creator god, according to the Gnostics. And more importantly, tying this to the angels on Mount Hermon from the Book of Enoch, and this descent in union with the daughters of men, breeding the giants, well, this is basically being identified as a transition to Gnostic dualism. So the Book of Enoch is seen as an anchoring point in this transition or evolution, they call it, from Alexandrian Judaism into Gnostic dualism, and that Manny is a Jew inventing this dualism. Now, I know a lot of the early church fathers did take the sons of God as being angelic, but did they necessarily tie them to the book of Enoch? That's the question. Whereas it's the Gnostics and their evolution or development of doctrine that seems to be much more tied to Enoch and Mount Hermon. So the red flag warning would be if you are a Christian who is being led to the connectivity of the watchers with this, why are you being led to a more Gnostic concept or things we'll find later in Jewish Kabbalah? So let's go to a few sources on identifying more of this Gnosticism that seems to be interwoven most often with this Genesis 6 understanding of the angelic union and other things that end up getting tied to Enoch. 
So we're going to read a couple quotes from the book Seth in Jewish, Christian, and Gnostic Literature. It's a Brill book by a guy with a last name I can't pronounce, K-L-I-J-N, Albertus Frederick Johannes. And we're going to talk about a couple early church fathers and their battles with the Gnostics. And I found this passage particularly interesting on page 74. And he will be talking about Ephraim the Syrian, who was an early church father and especially loved in the Syrian Orthodox Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and later was declared a doctor of the church by the Roman Catholics. And he was one of the church fathers in the 4th century doing battle against the ideas of Gnosticism because that's when it's really starting to become a movement versus the seeds of it that we see in the New Testament with the apostles battling against some of its early ideas. So, quote, In connection with the Sethites, Ephraim says that Seth himself was like the Son of God. The Sethites were called the name of the Lord, being a righteous people, but he quotes the Syriac text of Genesis 4.26, which is in agreement with the Masoretic text, which says, Then, at the time of Enosh, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, some people will dispute this passage as being a mistranslation. We'll mention that later in the second hour when we talk about the Christian battles on this. But in terms of the Gnosticism, here is an early church father who is giving the Sethite interpretation from his viewpoint, and he is going to battle against the Gnostics who are saying that the sons of God and the daughters of men was a union of angels. And it says, quote, It is obvious that Ephraim was also familiar with a number of traditions concerning Genesis 6. The first verse of this chapter is quoted in this way, And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Ephraim adds that this refers to the Sethites and the Cainites, so he is taking the Sethite interpretation. But contrary to that, quote, in other writings, he strongly rejects the idea, especially, he claimed, favored by the Manichaeans, that Genesis 6 speaks about angels. According to Ephraim, the Canaanites were lustful and therefore tried to beautify themselves and were poor and were therefore tempted by riches. So I find it interesting that an early church father who is very venerated is taking the Sethite view where they are lines of men and one is more lustful than the other. And he's saying that the viewpoint favored by the Manichaeans who are super heretical to Christianity and crop up in Barwell's memoirs as being the basis of all of the French revolutionary occultism and also the basis of the Cathar heresy that we've talked about. So if you're a Christian and you think those things weren't very Christian, the Cathars and the French Revolution, well, isn't it interesting that they stem back to Manichaeanism on some level? And here we have an early church father saying that the Manichaeans were the ones especially favoring the idea of Genesis 6 speaking about angels unifying with men. On page 79, it states that Christians generally thought that Genesis 6 referred to the intercourse between the Sethites and the Cainites. And the author is trying to source where this comes from. He talks about a man named Julius Africanus and trying to figure out who he learnt this from. Was it Jewish or Christian sources? And the author states it's hardly possible for it to have originated amongst the Jews since it is mentioned in Jewish sources of a very late date only. And then the author goes on to talk about how this Genesis 6 interpretation that went in a different direction from the Sethite and Canaanites 
was influenced by the Book of Enoch as a rich source of information on this and referring to the fall of the angels in terms of the Watchers, and then an influence of Jubilees, and then summing it up that the rabbinical influence here is obvious. So it's pretty interesting that this author stating the rabbinical Jewish influence, which is completely at odds with the Christians at this time, is going a different direction as well with some of this Genesis 6 stuff, and it's tying it to the book of Enoch. Now, one interesting thing is there was a Gnostic sect that sort of obsessed about the line of Seth and kind of deified it in a way and was focusing more on being of that lineage than Christ. So they are taking this Seth idea in a completely different direction. And apparently this is coming from Jewish sources, according to the author, and it was not accepted by the Christians because they were focusing on Christ, right? So here is a Judaizing Gnostic heresy that's teaching that Seth was instructed to destroy the generation of angels who had created the world and the two men who were there in the beginning. Now this is akin to Blavatsky stuff because the idea of Cain and Abel being the original creation as allegories for when the sexes separated, that's all part of her theosophy. So I think that this line of thinking lends much more to Blavatsky type stuff. So apparently in this tradition, there's a union of the angels and men and Seth is the hero of the day taking it out. And the flood was caused by the mother who was this androgynous deity, so probably akin to Sophia. So the flood wasn't caused by God or Yahweh. It was caused by this mother deity. And this was so that Seth would be the only line left on earth and not to intermingle with the line of Cain. But apparently these angels who intermingled with men, who are seen as Cain in this viewpoint... Well, they decided to bring Ham onto the Ark and tried to continue the evil on Earth through Ham being snuck onto the Ark. So this is a Gnostic concept, and interestingly enough, I've heard enough Christians in the alt-media trying to say that the Nephilim continued on through Ham. But you have to understand the context of that story from the Gnostic viewpoint. The line of Cain and this intermingling with the Watchers and Ham that all represents the Demiurge, which is the god of Catholic Christianity. It's the Christian god. So in that viewpoint, Ham is of the line of the evil Yaldabaoth, or Yahweh, who is this wicked Old Testament god, right? It's the god of Catholic Christianity that they think is the evil one, and the one interbreeding with humans, and then bringing them onto the ark through Ham. So my point is, if you're a Christian promoting that viewpoint, from the Gnostic perspective, you're actually just blaspheming your own God and hating your own God. So is that a joke? Is that a trick? That's what I would warn against. And this section of the book is stemming from the early church father Epiphanius and his battle against the Gnostics. And so we're getting a lot of this information from Epiphanius in his refutations of all of these Sethite Gnostic viewpoints. And one funny quote from him, apparently he compares the Gnostics to a particularly dreaded snake with no fangs. And so he has some very colorful statements to say about other sects, usually referring to them as serpents of some kind. So those are revelations from St. Epiphanius, who is venerated in Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Oriental Orthodoxy. So all that was taken from roughly pages 74 through 85 in the Seth and Jewish Christian and Gnostic literature book. So now let's go to the development of this doctrine that's tying all these things together. 
in the dualism of Manichaeanism. So we're going to source from John C. Reeves' book, Light Against Darkness, Dualism in Ancient Mediterranean Religion and the Contemporary World from pages 256 through 265. We're going to summarize all of that, and you can read through most of it on Google Books if you'd like. And starting off, they mention how Manichaeanism implies a corrective reading of Genesis or a counter-narrative or story to it, and that these groups shared a prominent interest in interpreting specifically Genesis, and this is identified as overlapping with the Mandeans, who are basically related to the Essenes or the Nazarenes. Now remember, Blavatsky claims that Christ was a Nazarene Gnostic, and Freemasonry often claims he was an Essene-type Gnostic. And so this is where these sorts of things are said to overlap and have a vested common interest in reinterpreting Genesis. And obviously Genesis 6 is certainly a reinterpretation from these Gnostic-type views. And obviously the other reinterpretation comes from the creation itself in terms of Adam Cadmon, an original primordial man who is sexless or androgynous, and this kind of devolves into a separate female and male creation in Adam and Eve, and that's seen as lesser and tied to animal procreation, right? Male and female having a sexual union to produce offspring. Well, when humans do that, that's tied to animals doing that, and thus that's a lower nature, a lower conception of divinity and creation and the order implied by God, thus negating the idea of the Catholic creator God and his order there's this whole other order that is tied to this alternate cosmology and story and all the things that we went over in occult science with Blavatsky and theosophy, so no need to rehash all that. And it's noted by the author that Mainz needed minimal adjustment in order to bring in this tradition of the Watcher Angels and Genesis 6 into his own development of the doctrine, which is different, as we'll see, from some of the viewpoints you'll hear by the alt-media Christians on this narrative, or even the occultists, but there are primary foundational things, and then there are more secondary or tertiary debates and differences. And we'll see that with Mainz saying that the Nephilim are actually the Watchers themselves, whereas a lot of other people will say they are the offspring of the Watchers mating with these women. Regardless, it's an unholy union of spirit and matter, let's just put it that way. And the author states that this minimal adjustment was because there was a lot of overlap with content from the books of Jubilees, First Enoch, and rabbinical literature during the medieval times of Midrash and Christian Muslim compilations. So maybe there's sort of like a Sufism or Zoroastrian overlap with all of this. We talked about those things always kind of being connected in all of this esoteric Kabbalah, whether it's Christian, Muslim, or Jewish. So regardless, coming from the more Protestant Christian camp in the alt-media, they tend to appeal to things like Jubilees or First Enoch or other alternative texts that are not canonical. They'll identify them as not being canonical and say you should be wary about them, but at the same time, are they not heeding their own advice and they're falling into stuff that really enables a lot of this Gnostic dualism or theosophy? And so Maine's methods include these main points. He is appealing to the idea of priestly sources in order to give his primordial history, but it's alternative, right? So he wants to think that there's a secret authority, which is tied usually to these sorts of things, right? 
oh, the Catholic Church's authority is the mainstream interpretation, and they're a bunch of mini despotic rulers, and so there must be this secret tradition somewhere else, whether it is esoteric adepts holding it throughout history, or Jews in the diaspora hiding it and keeping this Sophianic wisdom in exile, or the Protestants obtaining this gnosis through their understanding or union with God and their own Holy Spirit experience. The point is there's sort of a wisdom that's lost to the dark ages of the Catholic Church and Christianity, right? That's the unifying factor. The next point of Maine's methodology alludes to an asexual nature of the process of creation itself, right? So man and woman creating through sex is deemed as animalistic, and that's by the profane creator God's decrees, right? Whereas the divine androgen and how it creates is this whole nother way of being, and that's more relative to Blavatsky's theosophical pantheism, stuff like that. The third point is that humanity is a copy of the androgynous deity, much like Ialdabaoth is said to be the dyad from the monad and produces duality. That's one of the claims against the Catholic religion and understanding. And that's part of Crowley philosophy, right? Coming from the second Sephirot, the dyad, you go from Chokmah to Hesed, and he says the second who is the fourth the demiurge, whom all nations of men call the first, is a lie grafted upon a lie, multiplied by a lie, etc. Right? So this is all part of that philosophy. This idea of a copy, and you see it in the Gnostic movies like The Matrix, right? Agent Smith is copying himself all over the place, and there's this theme of duplication, right? Now, the Catholic viewpoint would be that the Kabbalists and Gnostics and occultists are the ones inverting and copying things and reordering them in their own hierarchy, and that the Protestants who are falling into these ideas are quote-unquote Judaizing or being led astray, and it's actually their own gnosis, like the Gnostics, that is subjectively leading them to these not-so-great things. And so the Protestants will say the Catholics are leading everyone astray with their dogmatic, ridiculous claims, right? So believe what you'd like. We're just trying to give all the different viewpoints here. So from that copy, the next point made is that there is a plurality of divine beings, and it's tied to the idea of Elohim saying, let us create man in our own image. And this is the stuff you always hear in the alternative media. You probably heard people like Jordan Maxwell talk about this a lot, right? So this is really Gnostic stuff. You can see this in movies like Prometheus. There's a whole set of archons creating, and it's the black goo, right? The substance of evil, and that is akin to Yaldabaoth, the demon spawn whom the female heroine aborts, right? Like the Gnostic Sophia, all these things that we've covered before. And then the next point, number five, is that there's this obsession with Enoch as being a, quote, authentic avatar of the Manichaean apostle of light. So this is kind of like the idea of Christ being an avatar, and there's these different adepts who are just avatars preaching the same secret doctrine, and they're persecuted by the mainstream it's really appealing to the rebel, right? And so this is interesting because Enoch is kind of obsessed about within different camps in the alt media. You have the people in Freemasonry and talking about the Royal Arch of Enoch. There's Enochian magic, which Crowley is tied to. And then on the flip side, you have the Protestant types talking about the Book of Enoch, preaching an alternate cosmology. And the funny thing is some people say Enoch promotes heliocentrism and some people says it promotes 
geocentric flat earth. Seems like there's a lot of dialectics going on around the character of Enoch and some secret wisdom attached to him and these books that are tied to it. And perhaps, ironically, do you get locked into a dualism, which is what Manichaeanism is all about, when you are advocating for your position on it and you're either on the Protestant side or the occult side and you're forever locked in an eternal battle with all of these different viewpoints spreading out and there's just a lot of confusion on it and factions and factions fighting with each other, even from their own side. The sixth point is that the Book of Giants is important in this Manichaean interpretation. I've seen some people make appeals to that. Point number seven, Mains or one of his followers was, quote, skillfully adept in the outright forgery of the Enochic literature. And he's referring to the Apocalypse of Enoch that's cited by a Mains Codex and relates to the similitudes of Enoch or first Enoch verses 37 through 71. So there's something about a forgery involved there. I wasn't really quite sure exactly what he was saying, but I think it just basically fundamentally reduces to there's some suspicions about the book of Enoch on the whole, and maybe certain fragments are to be looked upon with suspicion more or less. So tread lightly with these Enochian books, I think is the moral of the story. But again, you can do what you'd like. And so continuing... This Genesis 6 interpretation highlights a tension amongst the spiritual and the physical world. So again, this relates to Gnosticism or dualism, where the spiritual and material world are pitted against each other, despite theosophy unifying them in a pantheistic monism. We already talked about those two viewpoints still having fundamental things that are problems from the Catholic viewpoint and the general Christian worldview. And the author relates that Maines found it very useful in regards to the, quote, cataclysmic effects of an illegitimate union of errant divine beings and mortal women. So the point being that the idea of mixing spirit and matter from a Gnostic perspective is that it creates a cataclysmic effect. And I would say that you can extrapolate this into things like Nazi racial theory where they had sort of this Gnostic dualism where there was this pure race and there was a corrupt race and you got to try to weed them out with eugenics. And this is why you have a lot of LARPing amongst the Gnostic occultists that are tied to Blavatsky's theosophy. Yes, I know Blavatsky wasn't tied to the racial theories like the Nazis. Her superiority was a consciousness. But that's also a dialectic where these Nazi occultists, if you read them, despite taking a more active approach to the racial Darwinism tied to the root racism, whatever, they're pretty much in agreement with so much of what Blavatsky states. And so that's the dialectic, right? There's one fundamental opposition, but all these other things agree and harmonize, and they are engaging in that dualistic dance, ironically. And the Nazis tied this to the Cathars as being endowed with this wisdom. And they were LARPing, calling the Cathars these primitive Nazis, or at least particular ones. We mentioned this in the Cathars podcast, people like Otto Rahn, who was ironically Jewish, but there were others. And so if you want to know more about that, I'd suggest reading uh, Nicholas Goodrich Clark's book, The Occult Roots of Nazism. I just finished it, and that's something we'll get into in future research. But the point being is that these quote-unquote errors or heresies, as the Catholics would call them, manifest in a variety of ways based upon the subjective nature of a person 
or their culture or their background. And sometimes you see this in the alt media from the Protestant truther world where they think there's this serpent seed and there's this evil bloodline and that's the be all end all of this. And I would argue that that's leading you into a lot of this dualism and negating free will. And sometimes there's a caveat that tries to account for that. But a lot of it is focused on this sort of dualism of spirit and matter. And again, you see this in movies like Prometheus, where the mortal woman has an illegitimate union with one of these divine beings, births the demon spawn of the Aldebaot, and aborts it, right? And usually there's a rape attached to that in some viewpoints, and we talked about perhaps that being tied to the Watchers in Genesis 6. People will debate whether it was consensual or not. But regardless of that, this is where the connection from Mains becomes very interesting, where this book reveals that the Nephilim and the Giants are importantly connected to the Watcher Angels as being called abortions. And so we talked about Yaldabaoth being called the abortion and the cosmos a miscarriage by these Jews disillusioned under Roman rule. And so they're rebelling against their own God who they think has abandoned them, but maybe they weren't so well behaved and they weren't obeying the commandments. And maybe they were the ones actually aborting their God and projecting everything onto the creator. Perhaps a pattern that tends to happen. And so, calling these Nephilim abortions, well, if that is akin to Gnosticism, then the analogy is calling these Nephilim of the God of the Catholic Church. So recall that the Cathars were calling women who were pregnant as carrying a demon spawn and to pray to the real God to have an immaculate abortion of sorts. And then the Cathars calling the Catholic Church the beast and harlot of revelation like Martin Luther. And so there's that strange dialectic going on where they unify on the same basic concept, but they bring it about in different ways, and it's always at the expense of the Catholic Church and its quote-unquote authority over Scripture and interpretation, right? And oddly enough, this viewpoint on taking the Sethite view or a spiritual view, it's not a dogma. It's just a recommended tradition to perhaps prevent you from jumping into some sort of Gnostic dualism unawares. Regardless, these abortions are practically identified with the Watchers themselves by Mains, and this is the idea of angels falling into matter. Now, this is the only real difference from the types of rhetoric you'll hear in the alt-media promoting the Genesis 6 and Enochian Watchers connection, because in that version, the Watchers are separate from the Nephilim, but they are the progenitors of them, whereas Mains is trying to identify them as one and the same. Regardless, it's still an unholy union at the end of the day. And the last few points we'll wrap up on here is that Mains had a profound esteem for scriptural authority, but then why would he endorse a view that's contrary to the scriptural authorities of the day in their interpretations of Genesis 6, especially 6-4, on the Nephilim and the giants? Now, as far as I understand, the mainstream interpretation of the time was the sons of God being angels. This was a popular second temple interpretation. However, the unifying factor is that it valued the Enochian literature over the canonical Genesis perhaps a little bit too much, right? And so is this a trap when you put too much stock into the book of Enoch? Well, this is one of the byproducts of it. Even if somebody doesn't take Maine's specific viewpoints, 
is there still a fundamental connection? And that is the point that we're trying to express here. There's sort of like a split dialectic from these fundamental unities or two sides of the same coin. So, in other words, does heresy lead to things like Manichaean dualism, and does the Sethite view offer protection against this gateway drug, so to speak? Things you might want to ask yourself. And so, does this reflect Protestantism evolving into Freemasonry, whether it's a magical, occult, John D type thing, or some sort of Lutheran, Illuminati mysticism like Buma or Swedenborg that we talked about from Barwell's memoirs? or an Enlightenment rationalism, or people like Adam Weishaupt, is that the conclusion of the rebellion begetting rebellion, or the Ouroboros serpent coming around to shed its old skin and devour itself in its older incarnation to birth a new one. So that wraps up the Manichaean influence with the Watchers and Genesis 6. Again, we'll talk about the debates related to that with Peter and Jude in the second hour. But before we get there, we'll wrap up on the rabbinical traditions, and how they debated these things. And so for this, we'll go to a book called The Sons of God in Genesis 6, 1-4, Analysis and History of Exegesis by J.J.T. Dodens. You can read from pages 106-116 through 116 in the Google preview, and I think it gives a lot of good insights into these early debates. So again, most of these things were developing in the first few centuries A.D., the rabbinical Judaism went on a different tract. We have the church fathers developing a doctrine leading into the Catholic Church. And then we have the more Gnostic or dissenting viewpoints that are kind of caught in the middle, it would seem. And this book talks about all these different references and viewpoints to this. And coming from the rabbinic oral tradition, which is dated to beyond the second century, this may contain older traditions and there's a particular passage and interpretation by a rabbi, Simeon Bar Yohai. And he identifies the sons of God as the sons of the nobility. And what's really interesting about him is he actually curses anyone who calls them sons of God. And despite this curse, the idea of them being the sons of God and tied to an unholy union, as the Enochian tradition indicates, apparently was preserved in the Babylonian Talmud that has particular interpretations from the school of Rabbi Yishmael, and this ties to the Azazel scapegoat ritual from Leviticus, which is supposed to atone for the acts of Uzzah and Azael, which are names referring to the fallen angels from the Enochian tradition, which are referring to Azazel and Shemyaza. And in the book of Enoch, in chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, that's where you're going to find most of the stuff and some of the chapters after that talking about these angels lusting after the children of heaven or the women. And they take wives, even though they know it's a great sin. And they swear this sort of oath. And they're descending from Mount Hermon. And they take these wives and they defile them. And there's all these weird things about teaching them enchantments, cutting roots, herbalism. These women became pregnant, bore great giants. And then they started to sin against birds and stuff like that. And so this is where people will run with that and say, oh, look, they were genetic engineering. And this ties into a lot of the ancient alien stuff and the idea of forbidden knowledge. And they're teaching them constellation stuff, astrology, and all of these things tied to forbidden knowledge. And actually, if you go to the Jewish website, Aish.com, I'm sure I butchered that, but they have an article on the sons of God and Benai Elohim. 
and the current Jewish teaching on it. And it's pretty interesting because they talk about the idea that angels cannot fall, but this tradition of Uzzah and Azael indicates maybe they can. And does this mean Christianity's right? You know, this is kind of like one of the main issues they're addressing. They basically state it raises an important question. Aren't angels merely messengers of God? Can they actually rebel? Doesn't this seem to lend credence to the Christian notion that Satan is a rebellious angel? So apparently in Judaism, angels aren't rebellious if they're spirits. But here's the catch, and this gets into a sort of Gnosticism, pitting spirit and matter against each other. In this tale, Uzzah and Azael are two angels, and they basically say to God, why did you create man? He's just a sinner and he's kind of gross, right? That's the gist of it. And then God responds, if you lived on earth as the men and saw the beauty of their women, you would do no better. Basically, you guys would go down and become material and you would sin even worse than man. Now, what's really interesting is this connection to Uzzah and Azael being part of the Watcher Angels. Well, this episode in Judaism is post-flood. So this doesn't tie to Genesis 6 right here in Judaism, but if it's stemming from that tradition, then this wouldn't connect those two things. But oddly enough, it is teaching a sort of Gnostic understanding where the angels say, we'll go down and we won't sin. And apparently they took the challenge and failed and they became the angels that mated with people in Enoch, essentially. Now, the article says that most commentators in the Torah understand Genesis 6 as referring not to supernatural angels, but to the judges and the noblemen. Remember, that's the Rabbi Yohai version that has the curse attached to it. But they're trying to show you other examples here in this article of where that could be a possibility. So they're not too worried about the curse, it seems, in speculating. And they also mention the Sethite view that we'll talk about. And they also mention a connection from... Rashi to Genesis in 1922, referring to the angels who are sent to overturn Sodom, and that angels very rarely do assume physical form, and this is an instance when they are fulfilling missions for God on earth. So this is a wide variety of viewpoints, and we're trying to flesh them all out, and they all seem to have these conflicting things. One is post-flood with Uzzah and Azael, but they're supposedly tied to Enoch, which is supposedly tied to the Watchers, which is pre-flood. But then there is a tradition that also says they beget giants in a race of supermen that's tied to Genesis 6. And then we have one where the angels are tied to adopting physical form, but only then can they sin if they are physical and they are leaving their quote-unquote first estate, which is one of the things we'll hear as the explanation to refute Christ saying that the angels in heaven aren't marrying in the context that they're not procreating, right? So the point being, the article sums it up that saying the more generally accepted understanding is that the sins of mankind are described in Genesis 6, but there is a Midrashic opinion that takes the story more literally, and even so the implication is that the angels in human form can come to sin, but not the angels in heaven. So that would be more Gnostic, right? Sophia only sins when she descends into matter. Whereas in Catholicism, there was an angelic rebellion of sorts, and angels can take on the appearance of men and affect matter on some level, but they can't actually procreate because their nature is spirit. 
Now, people will debate that with some church fathers saying this or that, but generally speaking, that is the viewpoint. So when you're coming from the Protestant side of the coin and you're saying that the angels can only sin when they come into matter because they leave their first estate or whatever it might be, that's actually the viewpoint of modern Judaism as we're reading it here. And there's another rabbi, David Kimhi, who takes the idea of the sons of God as reflecting the sons and rulers of the elite, so they are human, and says that the story of the sons of God and the daughters of men were elites trying to marry morally inferior women. And he thinks that extrapolating that into the sons of God being Uzzah and Azael is far-fetched. And he even mentions the curse of Yohai. And what's kind of ironic is he says that these sons of God as men or nobility are also people who live long lives free of illness. And he says that the rabbis who identify these as sons of God do this. So it's almost like saying, screw you, curse. The people who call it sons of God actually live long lives. And that he's sort of inverting it and saying that if you study the heavens and seek knowledge and wisdom, you are like one of these nobility. And apparently part of this is an exegesis from the book of Jubilees in terms of these long lives and sort of a adept class, I guess. And some people expand upon that, calling these sons of God as nobility who were extremely intelligent, and they chose wives intelligently so that their children would enjoy great genetic benefits and physical strength and intelligence. So that's an interesting take. And then there's another that says they are to be understood as angels, coming from Rabbi Eliezer, but he still says that there's a connection of them to the sons of Seth, because they have integrity and righteousness, and his sons were called sons of God. So I guess he kind of tries to merge them as being united to each other in some way, which isn't totally incompatible with some stuff you'll read in Catholicism in terms of angels guiding or guarding people, right? Could this be like a guardian angel motif? I don't know. Maybe you could make that allusion. And another sage, Abrabanel, explains that the daughters of men are descendants of Cain and because their father tilled the ground and the sons are called the sons of man. And so that's apparently an allusion to that. And they also state that there's more speculative literature that's readily accepted on the angelic interpretation of the sons of God that led into Kabbalah and the 13th century related to the Enochian tradition in Uzzah and Azel. And apparently in the Zohar... The sons of God in this context of being these sinful angels are also viewed as the descendants of Cain. So that's interesting. It's reversed in that context. So from the Kabbalah standpoint, the sons of God are really evil. They're of Cain and they're of the sinful angels. And the daughters of men are the innocent victims, right? That's very different from the Sethite interpretation, which completely reverses it where the sons of God are righteous until they mate with the women of Cain, right? So why is it the Kabbalah version seems to be more in line with what a lot of people in the alt media promote as being the real story here? I find that strange. And so this tradition of the angels sinning in this sexual union is really a foundational element to the Kabbalistic viewpoints in Judaism held today and developed in the 13th century which was a time where the Cathars were floating around, right? And the Jews were supporting them and aiding and abetting in their heresy. 
And what's also interesting, in the book we mentioned earlier, The Light Against Darkness, on page 234, there's a connection made to the Cathars and the Manichaeans and the idea of the fall of the abortions, right? So this weird abortive nature tied to these Nephilim, which would again be tied to the Catholic creator God. So if you take the viewpoint that the Nephilim are evil demonic hybrids from the Gnostic Kabbalist standpoint, that is the God of Christianity. So it's kind of odd that a lot of alt-media Protestant Christians take that very same viewpoint. From the viewpoint of the occultists, you're blaspheming your own God and calling him an abortion. And I think maybe that's the trick. At least something you should be aware of if you do take that viewpoint. But regardless, at the end of the day, the Second Temple period, the angelic interpretation had a predominance, as far as I understand, despite the quote-unquote dissenting exegesis of Rabbi Yohai, who says there was a curse on calling it the sons of God. Again, that would include the Sethite view because they still call it the sons of God. So that puts a giant schism in between the interpretation of them being men right at the start. And this did enter Christian theological reflection at its very beginnings, but was it necessarily tied to Enoch? And even some of the traces of the Sethite views can be found in medieval Jewish Bible commentaries. So no matter what, none of these views ever go away. That's kind of the point we're making. There's going to be a sea of viewpoints that you can easily drown in and get lost in with a bunch of different rabbit holes. There's always going to be debates upon this thing, and there always have been. But does the Catholic tradition save you some time in rabbit holes and the predominance of interpretations that take the angelic viewpoint from non-Christian traditions tied to the Watchers lend towards Kabbalah, Gnosticism, and that Manichaean dualism and the stuff that was tied to the Cathars? And should that be a concern for people who are being organically led to those things by the Holy Spirit that you're actually learning the teachings from Kabbalah and Gnosticism, even though you're interpreting them as being Christian? And so is that the danger? And so people can take whichever viewpoint they want, but one seems to lead towards a lot more things that I would say are concerning. And so that would be the main caveat that we're trying to express. So in part one, we went over all of the esoteric stuff tied to this. And in the next hour, we'll get more into the Christian objections and arguments on this, especially when dealing with the references to this Enochian tradition coming from Jude and Peter along with some of the context of Genesis 6 and any other issues that arise around that. And then we'll probably wrap up on the serpent seed doctrine, which is something that, again, I think can easily evolve out of these ideas that angelic beings can become flesh and quote-unquote sin and procreate. To gain access to the second hour... Head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com. <laughs>